Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. Matthew begins his story with a list of names. And that's the start of chapter 1. And his purpose of doing so is to locate Jesus firmly within the story of God's people. He starts the book of the origins of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham, who David was speaking about earlier. Now, Jesus' family tree is traced through 42 generations. Quite a lot of generations. From Abraham, 14 generations to David. And from King David, 14 generations all the way to Joseph, husband of Mary. Mary, of course, we know was the mother of Jesus, who, says Matthew, is called the Messiah. For Matthew, for Matthew, Jesus represents the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. He was Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ. But you know, this was really difficult for the Jews to get their heads around. Really difficult. You see, they had been expecting a great political and military leader, well-versed in the law and descended from King David. He would deliver God's people from the oppression of the Roman Empire and as rightful heir, he would restore the kingdom once again to Israel. And Jesus didn't meet the brief. He wasn't the Messiah they'd been waiting for, they'd been expecting. His many miracles should have established his identity beyond any doubt. Who is he who turns water into wine? Heals the paralyzed. Returns sight to the blind. Who is he who rebukes the storm or commands a legion of demons and even raises the dead? And yet, despite a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, hailed by his followers, in the space of only a few days on that Passover week, 
he would go from hero to zero. This self-proclaimed king would be put to death on a cruel Roman cross. But you see, God's purpose was so much greater, so much greater than they could ever have hoped or imagined. Despite all appearances, Jesus was indeed God's chosen one. So in the first two chapters of his gospel, Matthew is at pains to explain this. He carefully weaves together different stories to prove that Jesus does in fact fulfill the Old Testament promises about the Messiah, that he does meet the brief. Now, I'm going to speak a little bit today about expectations. Expectations. I wonder what your expectations are this Christmas. Any expectations? None? Some amazing presents, perhaps? Or maybe you're wondering how you're going to pay for those amazing presents. Perhaps you're looking forward to time with the family, or not. Or maybe anxious about being alone. Maybe, I'm not looking at you, David, eating ridiculous quantities of food. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe a mixture of all of these things. Do you know, sometimes, though, reality doesn't align with our expectations. And this was certainly the experience of the Jews. They had read what the prophets had to say many years ago about the Messiah. But Jesus didn't appear to measure up. He didn't meet their expectations, as we've already said. Now, it's not that these promises of God were were false, but it's that God's people made assumptions that would ultimately prove to be incorrect. They could see only what was in front of them. Their vision was constrained by their circumstances, perhaps even their geopolitical circumstances. They were unable to see the bigger picture, God's bigger picture. Let's continue to think about expectations as we consider our reading. Now, the first character we meet in our story is who? Did nobody listen? Who's our first character that we meet? No. no. Joseph. Joseph. Joseph was the first character. Now, Joseph is just this ordinary guy. There's nothing remarkable about him, except perhaps that he's a distant relative, you know, 28 generations removed from King David. Jesus becomes Joseph's legally adopted son through marriage. And so in this way, Jesus is connected by Matthew to the royal bloodline. He is a descendant of David after all. But I was thinking, I've got a lingering question. A thousand years or so had passed since David, since David reigned over Israel. 
Now, surely after a thousand years and lots of generations and, and lots of people trying for babies, you're going to have your work cut out of you for you later, parents. <laughs> I'm sure they're thankful for that, David. Uh, I'm sure that after a thousand years had passed, David must have had hundreds, perhaps even thousands of other male descendants. So why was it this Joseph that was picked and not someone else? Was it arbitrary? I don't think so. I think I have an answer, but we're going to come back to that later. Let's think for a minute, though, about marriage in first century Palestine. I, I couldn't understand. Maybe it's just me. Maybe being a bit, bit daft. I couldn't understand why Joseph would have to divorce Mary at all. I mean, they weren't even married. They were just pledged to be married, it says in the story. So why did they have... You know, what's the deal? What's going on? Well, I discovered that there are three stages to marriage in first century Palestine. Firstly, the two families would agree upon the union. Most marriages were arranged at that time. And that arrangement possibly happened years previously while Mary and Joseph were still children. Secondly, when the children were of age, a public announcement would be made. And at this stage, the couple were engaged or pledged to be married. Now, in Jewish culture, it differs from our own because engagement was, in fact, legally binding. The couple may not even be allowed to spend any time together alone. And certainly, they were not permitted to have any kind of marital relations. And yet, that relationship could only be broken through death or divorce. Now, the third stage, the couple would be married. And it's at this stage they would live together and enjoy the rights of marriage. Now, we have been thinking about expectations. So I wonder what expectations Joseph had. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to ask you another question. You ready for that? What do you think Joseph had in the way of expectations? What expectations do you think Joseph had? Any volunteers? A wife that wasn't pregnant. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was one of them. Anyone else? Family, yeah. That's a good one, yeah. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he hoped for that. Love, love. yeah. He wanted to be loved. And to offer love. Anyone else? No doubt they expected that they would live together after their wedding. That they would be intimate with and faithful to one another. And that one day Mary would bear his children. But sometimes reality doesn't align with expectations, does it? They were engaged. They hadn't been together, we're told. So imagine the shock when Mary tells Joseph that she's pregnant. Eek. 
I'm sure the poor guy would have been crushed. His heart broken perhaps into a million pieces. Here's this girl that he's been, he's known for his whole childhood and teenage years. And they're pledged to be married. And then this happens. Devastated. And our story. No, no, Joseph, honestly, I've not been with another guy. Honestly, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the Son of God. <laughs> I, I write him. You know, not only do you cheat on me, but you don't even have the decency to be honest about it. Then you serve up some ridiculous story. You really expect me to believe that God made you pregnant. I think I'd be alternating, if I were Joseph, somewhere between crushed and and furious, disrespected, unloved. But let me return to my lingering question. Remember I said I had a lingering question. Why particularly did God choose Joseph and not some other descendant of David? Remember, there must have been hundreds of possibilities. Now, I actually think the passage points us to the reason. It's because of Joseph's character. Because of Joseph's character, he's described as a just or a righteous man. Now, according to the law, in this situation, Joseph had the right to formally divorce Mary, and the Jewish authorities could actually have had her stoned to death under Jewish law. Now, this might have been a little bit difficult under Roman rule because only the Romans had the legal right to execute. But even still, it was a serious, serious matter. But in his love and because of his good character, he resolved to divorce her quietly. His righteousness is shown in a few things. Firstly, in his faithfulness to the law. He wanted to honor God above all else. But also in his love, his grace, and his compassion. Choosing not to have Mary publicly disgraced. Now, let's look at what happens next. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Wow. How does Joseph respond to the revelation? Well, by doing exactly what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. So his righteousness can also be seen in his unquestioning obedience. And that obedience could prove to be costly. It would actually look, to all intents and purposes, as though Joseph had got Mary pregnant himself. So he risked being accused of violating the law and indiscipline. And yet, he was prepared, because of what God told him in a dream, to put his reputation on the line. He was a righteous man. It was unwavering, unquestioning, immediate obedience. 
And finally, he didn't sleep with Mary until she gave birth to a son. And so we also see his righteousness and his self-discipline and his restraint. Joseph was just an ordinary guy. He's hardly even mentioned in Scripture after the birth of Jesus. He may have been a distant relative of David, but presumably, as I said, only one of many. But he was a righteous person. And didn't God use him in just the most remarkable way? He was an important part of the greatest story in all of history. Imagine being charged with the responsibility. Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine being charged with the responsibility of fathering the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God himself. His wife impregnated by the Holy Spirit. It's a big ask. It may be, it may be that you don't see yourself as remarkable, that you think of yourself as just an ordinary person. But let me tell you this if you choose to honor God, If you choose to honor God, he will use you in the most remarkable ways. Not, of course, in the same way as he used Joseph. That was a one-time, one-time thing. But nevertheless, in his fulfillment of God's kingdom purposes. Joseph's modest expectations of family life had changed. His adopted son would be no ordinary boy. And this is the core of the passage. He was called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means God saves. He was called the Christ, Lord, the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of Jewish hope. He was Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Son of God Himself, born among us. Is that not crazy? Jesus was God intervening in human history. Jesus was God acting with saving power. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. This is what it says in John 3, verses 16 and 17, the verses with which we opened our service. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This giving of the son of God was not simply his death, not only his death, but it was also the incarnation. It was also his birth. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The pre-existent king of glory through whom we read earlier all things were made. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Get your heads around that. Do you know the birth of this Jesus? This Messiah challenged the expectations of the Jews. But you know, he was so much greater than the Messiah they'd been expecting, they'd been hoping for. He was the light who would bring salvation to the whole world. Remember, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, When God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and that from those descendants would come one person who would be a light to the nations. I wonder, and I'm going to end this morning with a question. What are your expectations of Jesus this Christmas? What are your expectations of Jesus this Christmas? Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for sending your son Jesus the pre-existent word become flesh who dwelt among us. We thank you for the faithfulness of your children, Mary and Joseph. And especially this morning for Joseph. Who was ruled by his righteousness. And we thank you, Father, for the love that he held for Mary and for the love that he held for you, choosing to honor both. And Father, we pray that even though at times we fall short, We ask that through your Holy Spirit in us, you would help us to live righteously. And we thank you that that is only possible because your son Jesus came into the world because of his great love. His great love for us. We are humbled before you this morning. Almighty God, And thank you.
And we pray that as we move forward through this Advent season and into the festivities that lie ahead, we would not forget the real meaning of Christmas. That God sent his son into the world, his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.